And I'm Ray. And researching for this episode gave me multiple panic attacks. <laughs> Welcome to Gore Report. Glad to have you here. <laughs> I'm not even joking. It really, for real, did oh give me God. gave me so many. Uh, as always, we hope you're having a good day and a good week and, and a, a good, good life. As always, we are wishing you a happy life, a merry life, a nice life, <laughs> a non-threatening life. All of the above. We just wish you, you know, safety above all else. And if you're new here, welcome. Welcome, welcome. We are definitely glad to have you. For sure, for sure. And we are so happy that you chose our podcast over all the other podcasts. It really means a lot to us. We try. It does. We wanted to wish you guys a Merry Christmas. And this is our last episode of the year. So, Happy New Year. Absolutely. Happy New Year. We hope that your Christmas was great. Absolutely. Yeah, I had a lot of really good time with family. I just honestly ate a whole bunch of ham. <laughs> I ate a whole bunch of fucking ham, and the it was thing. fantastic. Oh, my God. It just reminded <laughs> me, the only thing that I have been eating for the past few days are Christmas Day leftovers. Yeah, same. Like just, absolutely. Just the, you know, the ham, the, the ham. Indian casserole, yes. the deviled eggs. Yes, and don't even, don't even get me started on all the desserts. Oh, my goodness. The amount of cake and pie that has been put in my body the last four days. <laughs> I think I've gained like eight pounds in the past two days. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it was so bad. I'm telling it you. It was so bad. But um, we don't really have a lot to unpack at the beginning of this. I know that you said that this case was a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> A lot is an understatement, quite honestly. Oh, no. So I do want to go ahead and dive right in because, as you just said, this case is a lot. I have a trove of information to take us through. This is wow. going to be a long ride. So, you know, buckle in. I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> buckle in, grab some snacks, grab something to drink, whatever it is you may do. Because this one's going to be a really long, dark, awful one, I promise. <laughs> so, I'm going to start off this episode, as I usually do, with some pre-notes as well as a few trigger warnings. <laughs> Especially for the people tuning in that may be new listeners, you know, tuning in with us for the first time. That's kind of like a gesture we have here. I like to give trigger warnings, especially when things are very extreme. And this case is absolutely extreme, extreme, mm. extreme. extreme. <laughs> Most things that we cover here on this podcast are definitely not nice. You not guys nice. know that. These are real stories of real things that have happened to real people. And yes. our only goal here is to be educational while at the same time spreading awareness of and giving some real tenderness to the people involved in these cases. And some comedic relief. Yeah, and some comedic we relief. We gotta have a few laughs. A few laughs here and there, you know, to make the nightmare a little less nightmarish. Right. Uh, but more specifically, the tenderness we like to give are towards the victims of these cases and the families of the victims. We try really hard to be as gentle as we can with that type of thing. Yeah. So going forward, for today's episode, I'm going to be telling you all about a woman named Krista Pike. And I'm just going to go ahead and say it right out. No bullshit included in this introduction. This is absolutely one of the most depraved, 
ridiculous, malicious, vicious, intense murders I have ever learned about in my goddamn life. So this one tops all the ones that we've covered. Well, I don't know. You can't really you can't really compare them like that. Murder is murder and all murder is awful and you know individual stories can't be compared to others, but well, is is this one one of the absolute worst that I have ever covered? Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. So Krista, she was only 18 years old when she, along with two other teens, brutally killed one of their classmates while attending a Job Corps program in Tennessee. The name of the classmate who was killed was Colleen Slimmer, and she was only 19 at the time of the killing. And Krista Pike was the ringleader and main perpetrator in the act. This crime was so brutal, so senseless, so unreal that it resulted in Krista Pike being sentenced to death by the electric chair. Oh, my God. She was 20 years old at the time of her conviction, and the sentence she received made Krista the youngest woman in America to be given the death penalty. What? Yeah. So this case, it's absolutely fucking horrific to me. I have cried more than once while doing my research for this episode, and I can mm. confidently say that, you know, it's just, it's one of the worst. Again, it's just one of the worst that I've covered. Uh, I know I sound like a broken record with my next statement, but like, you know, there's so many aspects and layers to this story. So many things that make it incredibly sad and so hard to process. Another trigger warning that I will give is that this case specifically will have mentions of severe sexual, physical, and emotional abuse happening to children, such as rape. So that's going to be a thing, and I know that's very sensitive for some people. So if at any point, to you listening, if you find yourself uncomfortable by the conversation, then by all means, we understand. Please skip ahead, or maybe even consider listening to something else entirely. Yes, please do. Your mental health is very important to us. Absolutely. So with all of that being said, we can now dive into the absolutely horrific story of Krista Pike. Krista Gail Pike was born to her parents, Glenn Pike and Carissa Hansen, on March 10, 1976, in North Carolina. Krista would leave North Carolina with her parents when she was really young, and she would actually grow up in the town of Beckley, which is located in West Virginia. More specifically, that's in Raleigh County. Okay. Now, straight out the gate, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that Krista did not, in any way, shape, or form, have a happy childhood. Okay. Like, not at all. And this little bit about Krista's early life will be the only point in this story where you will have sympathy for her. And I mean that wholeheartedly. Oh, wow. So, as I said, Krista would grow up in Beckley, West Virginia. And both of her parents were pretty severe alcoholics. Okay. Krista would actually be born with a bit of brain damage. More specifically, damage to her frontal lobe as a result of her mother drinking heavily through the entirety of the pregnancy. Oh, my God. Like, Krista's mom did not for one second stop drinking, not through the pregnancy with Krista, and not even after Krista was born. She just kept on with it. Okay. So, for those of you who don't know about the frontal lobe, it's a very important part of your brain. (laughs) The frontal lobe controls decision-making, a lot of functions that regard, you know, your overall attitude and behavior, all that good stuff. So, again, Krista had been born with a head injury, essentially, due to her mother's drinking. And after Krista was born, things did not get better. As I said a little earlier... Krista's mother just did not quit drinking. In fact, drinking was Carissa's top priority. 
even more than her own child was. Oh, man. The physical living environment that Krista grew up in was also filthy. And I don't mean like untidy. I mean absolutely filthy. The house would be covered in trash from top to bottom. The surfaces of the home, such as the counters and tabletops, were covered in a thick layer of trash, dirt, as well as bugs. Ugh. There were even some animals in the home, and it was reported that Krista, as a toddler, would often be found playing in piles of dog poop on the floor. Oh my god! That's how utterly disgusting this house was. Carissa nor <sighs> Glenn cared to clean up. Glenn wasn't employed. He just sat at the house all day drinking, not cleaning, not doing anything to help anyone. Neither parent was attentive to Krista. Again, their only priority was partying and drinking. And it's a super, super sad image to think about. You know, this part of the this part of the story, this is not Krista's fault. Of course not. And it's sad that this child was in the hands of two parents who absolutely did not give a shit about her and her well being. It's just sad. That's my famous word here on this show. Sad. Sad, sad, sad. (laughs) Take a shot every time Gage says sad. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. So, to continue the story, as a result of Krista's brain damage, she was also prone to seizures. I'm not sure if, you know, they were epileptic seizures, but nonetheless, she was having seizures. Man, I hate that. Krista started developing these seizures when she was only 10 to 11 months old. So, not even a year old, and she's experiencing all of this. There was a specific instance that happened when Krista was only 14 months old where she was being watched by a babysitter. Her mother had gotten someone to watch over her that night while she went out to drink and party. Mm -hmm. Well, Krista had one of these seizures with the babysitter and the babysitter completely freaked out and took Krista to the hospital, you know, as any sane person would. Right, right. Uh, So when she gets Krista to the hospital, this babysitter then calls Krista's mom to tell her what had happened. She calls Carissa and she's like... You know, hey, your uh, your fourteen month old daughter just had a pretty bad seizure. I'm currently at the hospital with her. I'm freaking out. You know, maybe you should come look after her and make sure she's okay. Right. And Carissa dead ass says, "You know what? Actually, it seems like you actually have it under control. You're holding down the fort. It doesn't really seem like I'm needed. So I'm just going to carry on doing what I'm doing." What? Yeah. And this really shows you the kind of mother that Carissa was. And oh, my God. Yeah, again, this is real. This is very real. And it's so sad to me that Krista had to grow up in this again for like the third or fourth time. This is going to be the only part of the episode where you're genuinely going to experience some real sympathy for Krista. Because I definitely feel bad for Krista. That was a helpless child in this situation because none of this is her fault. Right, you know? right. I definitely feel bad for that aspect of her. But do I feel any sympathy for the person that Krista grows into and what she ends up doing? Absolutely fucking not. So, you know, cherish the sympathy while you have it, because I promise in about 30 minutes it's going to be gone. Oh so, <laughs> <laughs> I promise. Like, I promise. Uh, <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> so when Krista turned two years old, her parents would actually divorce and separate, and they basically had this thing where they would pawn Krista off onto the other one if they didn't feel like dealing with her. So, like, if Carissa didn't feel like dealing with Krista, then she'd send her to live with Glenn. Then if Glenn got tired of his daughter, she would go right back to Carissa. And it was almost a nonstop cycle of her just being bounced back and forth. And neither parent, no matter where she was at, she wasn't being attended to. She didn't have a clean environment. She didn't have a safe environment. Like, no one gave a shit about this child. 
I mean that. It was, it was also reported by Krista herself that when she would be in the care of her father, that Glenn would severely abuse her physically. More specifically, he would continually beat Krista with a leather belt. Like, he would roll Krista's shirt up, exposing her skin and her back. And then he'd take this leather belt and fold it in half so it was twice as thick, essentially. And then he would beat Krista with it repeatedly. This kind of thing would take place numerous times a day. And Krista, as an adult, still has scars on her body as a result of these beatings. Oh, my God. Now, the next set of characters I'm going to introduce to you in this story are Krista's paternal grandparents on her mom's side. Okay. So, Carissa's parents. So, neither Glenn or Carissa wanted to deal with Krista. When they get to the point to where they're fed up with her, they eventually started pawning her off on her grandparents. And this situation would literally be no better than her situation at home. Krista's grandmother was also a raging alcoholic, and she did not give a shit about Krista. In fact, Krista's grandmother told her that she hated her because she looked too much like her father, Glenn. (sighs) Which, what in the fuck, bitch? It's not like that's her fault. Like, how is it this child's fault that she looks like her father? Like, are you fucking kidding me? Um, maybe the person you should be mad at is, I don't know her dad. (laughs) Well, there's obviously some shit y'all need to sit down and talk about. (laughs) So, Krista's grandmother would verbally abuse her like this all of the time, and she would also lock Krista in a dark closet on numerous occasions so she wouldn't have to be bothered with her, which, again, all of this is fucking cruel. That's some raging. And keep in mind, again, at this part of the story, Krista is two to three years old. Oh, my God. So, now you have a look at Krista's parents, Krista's grandparents on her mother's side, And now we can take a little peek into what her grandparents on her father's side was like. So her other set of grandparents. And even though this part of the story does have a silver lining in it somewhat, it's still absolutely awful. Okay. So Glenn's mother, a woman named Delphi Pike, she was like the glimpse of happiness in the midst of all of this. Delphi was a terrific grandmother to Krista. She loved Krista. She cared for Krista. She was very kind to Krista. She loved her grandbaby. This is like the one person in this whole situation that actually gave a shit about Krista. Now, the not-so-happy part of this was the man that Delphi was with, and he was a man named Ernest. He was a complete monster of a fucking person. So, you know, imagine that. Just great. So when Krista would stay over at her grandma Delphi's house... Ernest would use the situation as a means to sexually molest and abuse Krista. Oh, yeah, and Krista couldn't tell anyone about this sexual abuse that was happening to her initially because it started when she was two years old and still in diapers. I'm sick. It started that early, and it went on for years. So, from everything that I could find, Krista's grandmother, Delphi, had no idea that this sexual abuse was happening. She truly had no idea what Ernest was doing behind closed doors. She was just blind to it all. But when she found out about this, the moment she found out, she immediately kicked his ass to the curb and got him out of her life. Good for her. So when this happened, Krista and her grandmother Delphi would have an absolutely amazing relationship. Again, Delphi was the one person in Krista's life that actually loved her. She actually gave a shit about Krista's well-being, and Krista loved her just as much. So when Krista was around 10 years old, I think, she would actually go on to stay full-time with her grandmother Delphi. She had been adopted, essentially. And Krista describes this time of her life as the one and only time of absolute happiness and safety that she had ever had. 
She said it was the first time in her whole life that she had not been abused, neglected, beat, screamed at. She had a clean place to sleep. She was just truly happy. Wow. And sadly, this happiness would be very short-lived. Because just two years after Krista moved in with her grandmother, Delphi, she was 12 years old. Her grandmother would actually pass away due to cancer. And this this absolutely crushed Krista. Because here she is. She's 12 years old. She's had nothing but traumatic experiences and pain from the time she was born, quite literally. So she finally gets some relief and happiness with her grandmother, who loves her more than anything. And then in just under three years of getting to live in that happiness and that safety, it's taken away from her. Fuck. Krista was then forced to go back into the care of her mother, Carissa. And as you can imagine, for Krista, quality of life did not improve whatsoever. Nothing had changed. She's just lost the only safety and love she's had her whole life. And now she's being forced back into the arms of the people who abused her and didn't care about her in the first place. Like, I can't imagine all of this. Like, this is seriously some fucked up shit. That is so heartbreaking. So Krista falls into an extremely deep depression as a result of all of this. And let me mention, Carissa nor Glenn gave a shit about her, not her mental health, her well-being, nothing. They also didn't give a shit that she had just lost her grandmother. And that's kind of fucked up because, you know, that's Krista's dad, Glenn. That's his own mother who had just died with cancer, and he didn't even give a shit. In fact, he was actually quite busy with a new wife, a new family, a new everything. And he literally told Krista this, and he told Krista that he no longer had the time for her as a result of him tending to his new family. That's so, oh my fucking God. Like, are you fucking kidding me? So Krista's entire life was genuinely completely absent of all safety, all love, tenderness, happiness. It was completely void of all of these things. Truly it was. So how in the fuck does anyone even begin to process this? So let me get this straight. He didn't want nor give a fuck about her. Not at all. But yet... Builds a whole new family. Did they have kids in the whole new family? I'm not sure if the kids were Glenn's kids or if they were the kids of the woman he was with. But regardless, he did have a whole new family, essentially. A whole yeah. new, you know, new people, new things. He were he he had new things he was tending to. Oh, my. Oh, my God. I'm having such a hard time understanding. Why the fuck? Like, yeah, that's what, what I'm fuck? saying. It's really bad. And it's like I said a second ago. How the fuck does anyone process this? Krista's life at this point in time was not going in a positive direction, as you can imagine. Oh, God. This poor child was going from one traumatic experience right to the next in this extremely vicious cycle. And shortly after she moved back in with her mother at 12 years old, Krista would experience yet another very significant trauma. Uh. And before I go any further... I'm going to do my thing and insert another trigger warning for you guys, because this is the part of the story that I'm going to be mentioning some pretty intense descriptions of assault and rape. Okay. Uh, More specifically, that happening to a child. So, again, as I say in the beginning, I try not to be annoying about it. If this is too much for you and you don't want to hear it, then please skip ahead accordingly. And, guys, take a deep breath. (sighs) Woo-saw. 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 But to continue the story, Krista was walking down the street in her neighborhood in the middle of the day when a total stranger grabbed her off the street, pulled her into a bush, and raped her. 
It, in the middle of the day? In the middle of the goddamn day. And she was only 12 years old. Oh, my God. Now, as for the details of this offense, you can actually find the police documentation online. And if I'm being honest, I don't want to repeat the details of this because I just think it's too much. But you can go find that for yourself if you would like to know a more detailed description of what exactly happened. Mm. But the one thing that I will say is that it was an extremely violent rape and the man involved his dog in the assault. And I'm just going to leave it at that. Now... Not long after the assault, Krista actually confided in one of her school teachers about the attack. And thanks to the information that Krista had, as well as the teacher actually giving a fuck about the situation, the police got involved. And the man who had raped Krista was caught and arrested. I'm so sick. Yeah, this man was actually caught and arrested and put in jail. So when Krista's mom was informed about the rape, can you guess what her reaction was? What? She accused Krista of lying for attention, even though a literal arrest had been made. This man was literally in prison. He had pleaded guilty to the offense, and Carissa is still going to accuse Krista of lying. Isn't that just fucking insane? What the fuck? So, as Krista got into her early teen years, her depression worsened. At the age of 13, she turned to heavy drinking and substance abuse to try and cope with her trauma, the loss of her grandmother... The brutal attack that had happened to her, just everything. An entire lifetime of abuse and sadness. And Krista just started going down a really dark path. But get this shit. Get this shit. This is going to make you fall out of your fucking seat. Are you ready? Okay. As Krista got deeper into smoking and drinking and partying and such, her mom actually magically all of a sudden found her interesting. Carissa was like, oh, shit, bitch. Why didn't you tell me sooner that you like to smoke and drink? You know what, girl? You all right with me. Oh, yeah. my yeah. fucking God. I fuck with you, Krista. I fuck with you. <laughs> Carissa literally all of a sudden started to care for her daughter in the moment that she started partaking in the same things that she liked to do. And I will never get over that. Oh, my f- Oh, my fuck. And and let me explain a little further. I don't mean that Carissa started actually giving a shit and treating Krista well. No, it's not like that. But she just started to find her daughter interesting. So Krista is 12 to 13 years old. She's clearly crying out for help. And her mother becomes her goddamn drinking buddy. I And that's as deep as it goes. I'm so I'm just I'm done with this shit already. Right, (laughs) (laughs) right, right. So, during Krista's teen years, her mother would also constantly have men in and out of the house. And I don't know what might make this point obvious or anything, but these men that were in and out of Carissa's life and home were not good men. Like, not at all. And a lot of them would have quite the twinkle in their eye for Krista. Get the fuck out of here. Yes. And it is noted that a few of these men that would constantly be brought in and out would have a pretty significant negative impact on Krista's life. Carissa's fourth husband, a man named Danny Thompson, he would literally violently whip and beat Krista. And the even more fucked up part of this scenario is that when Danny would finish beating Krista, he would literally hang the whip on Krista's bedroom wall like some sort of decoration. Oh, my God. 
Krista, Krista herself would actually later state that this was extremely traumatizing for her due to it never seeming like she had a safe place. Like this wit being on her wall in her bedroom, which is supposed to be a safe place. It just took the security away from her. She was literally constantly reminded in every waking moment of her life that she wasn't safe and violence was impending at any second. I know, like... We joke about safety pending, but her safety definitely was pending. Literally pending at all moments. It's fucking sad. And keep in mind, again, how young she is. She's at this point in the story. She's 13, 14. This pisses me off so bad. When Krista was 13 or 14 years old, her mom actually separated from Danny because she had found a new man. And this man's name was Steve. I looked everywhere that I could, and I just couldn't find his last name. We just know him as Steve. Okay. And he was even more fucking evil than the last shit stain we just talked oh. about. So I mean, I don't know why I'm so surprised. I mean, you know? it's shocking. It's shocking. It's it's really hard to grasp that this is real. I was saying that I don't know why I'm so surprised because obviously the type of mother that she was from the very beginning, I don't know why I'm surprised that she would be this way now. It honestly doesn't really surprise me one bit. That these are the type of men that she's bringing home around her child. You know what I mean? It's all this really fucked up cycle. Yeah. It really truly is. There's a lot of generational recycled trauma and abuse here. Yeah. That's that's playing a part. I mean, it's just really, really not good. But Steve, again, he was worse than Danny. He would often wake Krista up in the dead of the night just for the sole purpose of beating the shit out of her. Steve also had this thing where he would claim to be wrestling with Krista, but in reality, he was just rolling around with her on the floor violently so he could feel her up, essentially. He called this wrestling. What? Steve would also punish Krista by violently twisting her nipples until she screamed. Oh, ow. Repeatedly, on a number of occasions, ow. all the time. Yeah, literally until she screamed, until she was bruised across her breast. She was 13, 14 years old. And Krista would often tell her mother about what was happening. And her mother told her over and over again that she was a liar and that she was making everything up because she just didn't want to see her happy with a man. Bitch. First of all. Long walk off a short pier, bitch. Long walk off a short fucking pier. I want to see her jump off a stool if you catch my meaning. That's what I'm fucking saying. There was even another incident with Steve where he literally punched Krista square in her face in front of family during a family cookout. Steve said that he did it because Krista was annoying him. And no one fucking did anything. Well, yeah, this incident actually caused some of the extended family that was at that cookout to contact CPS. And that made Carissa... Krista's mother, very angry. She was still adamant that Krista was lying about the abuse, even though this woman had been literally present when Steve knocked Krista into the dirt by punching her in the face. Like, she witnessed this, and she's still going to say that Krista's a fucking liar, and it's absolutely sickening. I just... Oh, my God. There is just so much with that. Again, it's really hard to grasp that this happened. I mean, I don't really have faith in CPS. I mean, let's be real. How many times I mean, have I we don't covered either. a case where CPS did nothing? You know, so, I, I, I agree with that. That's a whole gray area we can get into here. But, you know, this whole incident caused that. This extended family did contact CPS. Please tell me they took this seriously. No. And the, oh, and uh, the abuse didn't stop for Krista. Not from one day. 
Krista was actually removed from the home for three months due to one of her friends reporting to CPS that she had literally watched Steve drag Krista into her bedroom by her hair. So after this three-month period that Krista was removed, she was returned right back into her mother's care. Fucking low lives. So it would be over the following two to three years after that that Krista would grow into an exceedingly violent individual. She began rebelling super hard. Krista started getting into a lot of trouble for cussing out her teachers. She was very aggressive with other students. She also started skipping school quite a lot during this time. And the whole crowd of people that Krista would hang out with, they just were not the best of people. You know, here in this point of the story, you can really see an image being painted. Violence. Absolutely. Violence. Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, we are famous for saying it. We are broken records. This is yet another case that is, you know, you could really go to town with that nature yeah. versus nurture thing that we love to talk about. It's very important. But when Krista was around 15 years old, she got involved in petty crime. She had committed a few minor burglaries and she kind of got caught in the middle of one of them. Like she got caught red handed. And that incident led to Krista being placed in a juvenile detention center for 12 months. Okay. And her time at juvie just was not good, as you can imagine. Right. And this is where Krista really started getting aggressive. She was constantly getting into really bad fights with other kids at the detention center. She just became extremely argumentative. She just, this switch had flipped in her where Mm. she had, you know, basically she was in fight or flight mode all the time. And she learned the thinking and the behavior of, you know, if I'm not absolutely as vicious as I can be, then I can't protect myself. Right. So after Krista got out of juvenile detention, things did not ease up for her. And her anger and her violent tendencies did not improve. When Krista was 16 years old, she was seen by a doctor who diagnosed her with major depression, PTSD, and bipolar disorder. Okay. Krista would go on to get into a string of pretty toxic and abusive relationships over that next year during her being 16. And, you know, none of that helped her. She was dating older men or, you know, at least boys older than she was and they were also very violent and very controlling it was very toxic so like none of that helped her at all and she would also go on to drop out of high school at this time as well man flash forward a little bit now krista is 17 years old and it's at this point in her life that she would endure yet another absolutely fucking unimaginable trauma she was walking home one night and by you know she was by herself and again she was snatched off the street by a stranger. Krista tried fighting against him, but he overpowered her. He dragged Krista by her hair up a hill that was next to the road she was walking along, and he began to strike Krista in the head with a rock. This man then violently raped Krista while also continually striking her in the head with this rock. This man left Krista on that hill to die and ran off. Krista then somehow managed, and I don't know how in the fuck she did, but she managed to get up. Like, this this attack did not leave her unconscious. She was conscious the whole time. And she got up, and she walked herself to the hospital. And there are medical records that 100% prove that this incident happened. There are medical records that 100% prove that Krista was not only raped, but also hit over the head multiple times by a blunt object. So when Krista was in the hospital for this... They obviously contacted her mother, Carissa. And can you take a wild fucking guess as to what her reaction was? Just take a guess. Take a guess. I I would love to hear you take a guess. Obviously, she's going to pull. She's lying for attention again. 
absolutely. Carissa again said that Krista was fucking lying for attention, even though her daughter was quite literally in the fucking hospital for being brutally raped and assaulted for the second time. It would be a little less than a year after this incident that Krista turned 18 years old. And then Krista made a decision to enroll herself in a youth job corps program located in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I think at this point in the episode, we can take a small breath, kind of like process <sighs> how we're feeling about everything. Like, this is really, really intense. And if I'm not mistaken, you didn't know anything about this case. Am I correct? Yeah, none whatsoever. Oh, bless your heart. So you're just, you're blind right My now. My blood pressure is through the roof right now. <laughs> it's really, really, really awful. I'm telling you, I was not exaggerating in the beginning when I said this was one of the most horrible cases that I have ever had to research and cover. I had an exceedingly hard time putting this episode together. I'm not even going to lie to you. Well, I'm having an exceedingly hard time sitting here listening to it. <laughs> <laughs> so before we continue into this next part of the story, we're now transitioning into the events leading up to the crime okay. that was committed. Um, and it's no more nice than the rest of this episode has been. So, <laughs> well, I'm ready. Just given that little warning now. I'm ready, but I'm not ready. <laughs> so, to continue the story, Krista had enrolled herself into a Job Corps program for use when she turned 18. This program was located in Knoxville, Tennessee. And basically, to explain what the program was, Job Corps is like a government-ran program for youths between the ages of 16 to 24. Yeah. It's basically for young people who maybe never finished their education or if they needed help developing life skills and gaining employment, like things like that. Yeah. I'm not sure how many states had programs like this at the time that Krista went, but the particular one that she went to was being held right outside of the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Okay. And the Job Corps facility was basically built like a college dorm. The students enrolled in it would actually live there at the facility. This particular program was also not really ran the best. It didn't really have the best funding, which was a common thing with government-ran programs at this time. Mm -hmm. You know, it just really, really wasn't the best environment. A lot of teens that were enrolled there came from very troubled backgrounds, and violence was a common occurrence amongst the students. It yeah. was reported that... In Krista's first week at this program, a boy was actually stabbed in one of the bathrooms. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, yeah, just, just painting that image for you just a little bit. So, Krista enrolled into this program during the fall semester of 1994. And during her first months there, she would meet a 17-year-old boy named Tadaryl Ship, okay. And he's very important in today's story. Okay. So, to Daryl, he had grown up in Memphis, Tennessee, and he was raised by his mom. He dropped out of high school in the ninth grade, and after dropping out, he got involved with some really not good people. He was involved in a lot of gang activity and gang violence. And when his mom, you know, she saw the path he was going down, she basically, you know, had a stern talking to him. She was like, you know, I don't want to see you do this with your life. You need to finish your education and do something. Yeah. So she got him to enroll in the Knoxville Job Corps program so he could finish his education and possibly get a job of some sort. Okay. So Tadaryl would enter the Job Corps in the fall semester of 1994, the same semester as Krista. 
And when the two met for the first time, it was love at first sight. Tadaryl actually went up to Krista and told her that he had a dream about her. <laughs> so you're saying, oh, now, just wait. But uh, yeah, he tells Krista that he had this dream in which he saw the girl of his dreams. And he got his friend to draw this girl. And he actually had the picture with him. So he showed Krista this sketch. And the picture that was drawn actually did look a lot like her. Well, buddy got game. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't necessarily believe this story is true myself. Because, I mean, what are the chances? Realistically, he probably saw her in the corridor and was like, Hey, bro, I need you to draw this girl for me because, you know, I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to get her. I don't know. But I think that's more of what happened. But then again, this could be true. I mean, I'm just saying I don't think it is. Okay. But Krista, you know, she saw this gesture. She was like, well, my gosh, I'm in love. <laughs> and it was in that moment that the two youths experienced a burning in their loins unlike anything they had felt before. It was like a warm cricket song on a fresh summer evening. The ever-glowing green of a lively forest blooming into pure teenage hormonal attraction. It was pure love. So, you know, the two had immediate chemistry, and they went on to jump into a full-blown serious relationship not long after meeting each other. Oh, wow. But the relationship between them was very, very toxic and controlling. Saw that one coming. Right. Their love was very obsessive and possessive. Like, that was the main thing with them. But one of the primary things that the two bonded over was Satanism. Oh, okay. And Makes sense. before we go any further, I'm just going to stop myself right there and I'm going <laughs> to give a little rant. We had a rant similar to this when you covered the Chicago Ripper crew. Yes. But I just want to say that I in no way think that the events in this case is any reflection of actual Satanism or people who follow its practice. I do not think that for one second. You know, I do not think that Satanists are violent, crazy people. I'm I'm not about that. I'm just saying Satanism here because that is what to Daryl claimed it to be. Mm -hmm. That is what it's known for. To Daryl claimed this and he, you know, had his own fucked up way of it. But I'm just I'm just wanting to say that I I don't genuinely think that this is a true reflection of the practice. I truly don't. And I also want to interject that a lot of people use Satanism not that they're practicing this religion, but they use it more as shock value. It's about you know, how people will sit there and say, oh, I'm a witch, but they don't spend the time researching. They don't practice. You know what I mean? Exactly. It's like little Miss Molly over here got a bundle of sage from Books a Million and all of a sudden she's a priestess. Yeah, right. You know, and I'm not trying to be mean or bully or stereotype, but, you know, that kind of thing does exist. Whether we want to joke about it or not, there are people that do that. And that's a good point. I yeah. think this is an example of that. Yeah. Full heartedly. So I just want to give that little point before uh, going forward. We are a Satanist friendly podcast we don't <laughs> care what you believe as long as you're not hurting yourself or other people so we are supportive of any religion absolutely i mean you know if you're new here and you don't know me and ray are actually both pagan yeah. so i mean incredibly pagan so there's no judgment here i just really wanted to point out that in the event that anyone listening to this actually does practice satanism then i just want to say this is in no way what we believe to be a real reflection of your practice. 
we have the utmost respect for everybody's practice here. I just really, really want to make that note. You know, I don't want to be viewed as contributing to that satanic panic bullshit that I hate with all my heart because right. I think it's such bullshit. Exactly. It's not for us to judge or impose our beliefs on others, and everyone should think that way. Exactly. So back to the story. Tadaryl was really heavily into this aesthetic of darker occult stuff he seemed very interested in darker magic demonology human sacrifice just all of that kind of stuff and he was sharing all of this with krista so krista took a really heavy interest into it and the two bonded over it Mm -hmm. krista grew to have a fascination with this so-called satanism as well as other things branching from the really dark side of the occult. So, you know, that was their thing entirely. Oh, man. Now, this story starts to go downhill even further when Krista meets another student at Job Corps. Mm-hmm. And this student was 19-year-old Colleen Slummer. Okay. Colleen was born on September 20th, 1975, and she grew up in the Orange Park area of Florida. She was raised by her mother, a woman named May Martinez, and her stepfather. As a child, Colleen was described as being very bubbly and happy. She was exceedingly kind, and she was a very gentle, sweet girl. Colleen loved to draw, paint, and roller skate, and she was also extremely bright. In Colleen's early school life, she did extremely well with the grades that she made, and she showed a very strong interest in computers and computer science. Before ninth grade... Colleen actually did get diagnosed with a learning disability. I couldn't find exactly which one it was, but she got this diagnosis and this caused her to drop out of high school during her freshman year. She was having some complications. Mm. Even after dropping out, Colleen still did everything she could do to be independent. She worked numerous jobs over her early teenage years, including Wendy's, Taco Bell, places like that. And she would keep these jobs for years. It was when Colleen turned 19 years old that she decided that she wanted to do something more with her life. Mm -hmm. She decided that she really wanted to go to school so she could pursue her passion, which was computers and computer science, like I said. And this is when she applied to enroll in the Job Corps program located in Knoxville, Tennessee. Colleen would also start in the fall semester of 1994, along with Krista and Tadaryl. Okay. And in the beginning of the semester, Colleen was doing really great for herself. She didn't get into any kind of trouble. Things were just kind of really neutral for her. That is until she met Krista Pike. Now, the first interaction between Krista and Colleen was not a pleasant one. Basically, Krista had heard some rumors There was a girl on campus that was Krista's friend, and she was pregnant, and there were rumors going around that this girl's baby daddy wasn't being faithful to her, and, you know, there was some talk that he was sleeping around. And one of the names that got thrown around in regards to women that this guy was cheating on Krista's friends with was Colleen Slimmer's name. Man. So, Krista actually went up to Colleen one day and told her to watch her back. This caused an argument between the girls, and it practically set the foundation for Krista and Colleen to be sworn enemies. And let me say, too, there is also not one bit of evidence anywhere that proves that Colleen slept with anybody. So keep that in mind that all of this is literally just he said, she said teenage bullshit. Right. Now we can go to November of 1994. For Thanksgiving break that year, Krista actually had to go home and stay with her mom for the holidays. Which, she wasn't exactly happy about that. Right. Uh, But while Krista was back home for the break, Tadaryl and Colleen both stayed on campus. 
So when Krista gets back from Thanksgiving break, she notices that Tadaryl is acting a bit weird around her, mm. a little shifty. So after a few days, Krista confronted Tadaryl, and he came clean, and he told Krista that while she was away, that he and Colleen had hooked up. Mm. And this made Krista fucking livid towards Colleen, which... I'm going to say another pre-note before we go any further that there is no evidence that says anywhere that this was an actual thing that had happened. And this is all talk. You know, for all we know, Tadaryl could have been lying. Right. He could have used Colleen's name as a scapegoat for his infidelity because he knew that Krista and Colleen already had bad blood. You know what uh, I'm saying? Yeah. Tadaryl was also a very violent and manipulative person. So it's really not far-fetched to think this. Not at all. I just want to make the note that this is all rumors and talk there is no evidence that colleen did any of this and personally i don't think she did right so i'm just gonna say that now we can continue but you know even in the event that it is true let's say that colleen and to daryl did hook up okay okay i don't know krista why get mad at colleen for your boyfriend's infidelity why not get mad at your piece of shit boyfriend for his own actions you know that part that's just a question I have personally. I mean, maybe we should blame men for their own actions. I don't fucking know. I could be talking out my ass. <laughs> Anyways. Well, if it isn't the consequences, my own actions. <laughs> I ran out of breath. So, Tadaryl also made it out to Krista that Colleen was this super obsessed stalker who just wouldn't leave him alone. He's even quoted saying, quote, I didn't even know she existed. She came on to me. End quote. Ew. So ick. That's that's major ick. Yeah, it's disgusting as fuck. So all of this made Krista's blood boil. Krista became 100% convinced that Colleen was purposefully trying to steal Tadaryl away from her. And as a result of this, Krista started making Colleen's life a living hell. Colleen, 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 Colleen. It's fucking stupid. So Krista was following Colleen through the corridors, trying to fight her. Krista would constantly scream and throw insults at Colleen every chance she got. Mm -hmm. So Colleen started to become afraid of Krista. Just one month before Colleen was killed, she actually called her mom and she told her that she wanted to drop out of Job Corps because there was another girl that was bullying her to the point that she was afraid. Colleen didn't tell her mother Krista's name, but she said that, you know, she was afraid of this other girl on campus who wouldn't leave her alone and that oh, she man. just wanted to come home. And May, Colleen's mother, not knowing how bad the bullying really was, she basically goes, you know, you were excited to do this. This is important to you. If you just stick through it, you'll be happy that you did. Don't let her bother you or get to you. You know, go and do what you need to do. Just just work through it and and stay there. You don't need to come home. You know, you can do it. Oh, man. So that's what Colleen did. And the feud between her and Krista continued, only escalating more as time went on. Now, in January of 1995, just days after Tadaryl, Krista, and Colleen had all returned to Job Corps after their Christmas break, Krista went into her dorm room and found that her room was ransacked. A lot of her clothes had been cut up with razor blades, and her belongings were strewn everywhere. Krista also found some photographs that she had of her grandmother Delphi that had been destroyed. You know, the good grandmother. Yeah. This absolutely set Krista off, and the only thought that she had in her brain was, Colleen did this to me. 
this is Colleen's doing. So this fueled Krista's obsessive hatred for Colleen even more. So in those coming days, Krista became consumed with revenge. She wanted to pay Colleen back for destroying her things, and she wanted to pay Colleen back for trying to steal her boyfriend. So Krista and Tadaryl start coming up with a plan to pay Colleen back, and I'm going to put emphasis on it. It is absolutely fucking depraved. Mm. So on January 11th, 1995, Krista approached one of her classmates, a girl named Kim, and Krista tells Kim that she has this awesome plan in mind. Krista tells Kim, quote, I'm going to fucking kill Colleen. I'm just feeling mean today, end quote. What? And let me say, too, this has escalated this whole situation. It's escalated so quickly. Like, keep in mind that to Daryl, Krista, and Colleen at this point had only known each other for four months, and it's grown to Krista wanting to do this. Oh, wow. Like, that's fucking insanity. And it would be the next day, on January 12th, 1995, that this horrid plan would be put into action. So in the morning hours of school that day, Krista goes up to Colleen and says that she wanted to make a peace offering. She tells Colleen that that evening, her, to Daryl, and a third student named Shadola Peterson were all going to go to a blockbuster and rent a movie to watch that night. Okay. Krista then asks Colleen if she would like to tag along. At first, Colleen was really hesitant and nervous about, you know, Krista asking this, because it's like, what the fuck, bitch? You've been making my life a living hell for months now, and all of a sudden you want me to go to a blockbuster with you? She was really nervous about it, but Colleen agrees to go, hoping Mm -hmm. that maybe if she did, that Krista would stop bullying her. Okay. So that evening, around 8 p.m., Krista Pike to Daryl Ship, Shadola Peterson, and Colleen Slimmer all check out to leave campus. As the group of four are walking to Blockbuster, they pass by a park. And Krista goes, Hey, you guys, I actually have a big old bag of weed hidden in this park. We should totally go smoke some together. Pause for two seconds. Who else remembers Blockbuster? Like, I was born in 95, so I kind of remember. I remember Movie Gallery more than I remember Blockbuster, but you're a little bit older than me, so. Yeah, I remember actually my family going to Blockbuster, and they were doing these Identikid things where they, like, put you on video. They made a video of you so people could see how tall you were, what you sounded like, what you looked like. It was actually a pretty good thing, but like... Holy shit, that's crazy. Yeah, it's see, <laughs> Yeah, like I said, I was born in 95. I'm a 95 baby, so I have very, very vague memories of Blockbuster, but I more so remember, like, Movie Gallery. Right. But yeah, <laughs> so this group, uh, they're walking by this park. And Krista goes, you know, hey, I got some weed hidden in this park. We should go smoke some together. So the group agrees, and they all go off into this park. And this was Krista's plan all along. She purposefully wanted to lure Colleen away from the campus before attacking her in hopes that she wouldn't get caught. Oh, man. So Krista starts leading the group deep into this wooded area. After what seemed like forever of walking into these woods, Colleen actually started to get really nervous. And she felt this really bad feeling in her gut. So she stops and asks everyone, you know, I'm not really feeling good about this. Is there really any weed out here? And Krista responds by saying, nope, there isn't. Then in that moment, 
Krista started screaming at Colleen, asking her why she was trying to steal Daryl away from her. Krista basically started a fight right there with Colleen. And before Colleen could even react to what Krista was saying, Krista punched her in the face. Mm. This punch made Colleen fall on her knees, and she was holding her face while crying and screaming. Krista then grabbed Colleen by the hair and started repeatedly punching her in the face and the sides of her head. Krista then slammed Colleen's face violently into her knee several times. This part of the attack broke Colleen's nose completely. Colleen started screaming even louder, and she was trying to cover her face while she begged Krista to stop. Krista threw Colleen on the ground on her back and started kicking Colleen in the face, mouth, and head as hard as she could. While all of this is happening, Tadaryl and Shadola are just standing by watching it all happen without saying a goddamn thing. As Colleen is being kicked in the face and head by Krista, her screaming only intensifies. She's literally begging Krista to stop. She's asking Krista, why? Why are you doing this to me? Krista then gets on top of Colleen and starts slamming her head into the ground over and over and over. Krista is telling Colleen to shut the fuck up. Colleen somehow managed the strength in this part of the attack to roll Krista off of her. And she gets up and she tries to run away. But Colleen didn't make it very far before Tadaryl grabbed her and threw her back on the ground. What the fuck? And this is where Tadaryl then grabs Colleen by the hair and also starts slamming her head into the ground as hard as he can, over and over and over. This went on for just a few minutes before Colleen somehow again managed to push Tadaryl off of her. Somehow she hadn't been knocked unconscious at this point. She then tries a second time to run. Colleen is still crying and screaming through every second of this, by the way. Colleen only made it a few steps before Krista and Tadaryl both grabbed her and threw her back on the ground. And this is where Krista and Tadaryl rip Colleen's shirt and bra off. In their own words, they said they did this to make sure that Colleen wouldn't try to run away again. They were hoping that her being topless would make her not want to escape. As in, she wouldn't want to run into public, you know, without a shirt on, and it's fucking disgusting. After Colleen's shirt and bra were removed... Krista jumped on top of Colleen with a box cutter that she had brought with her, and she started slashing at Colleen's stomach over and over and over again. Over the next 45 minutes, Krista continued to slash at Colleen's stomach, and it would later be revealed in the autopsy report that Colleen's body had been slashed over 300 times and this part of the attack 45 minutes of continuous torture and slashing colleen did not pass out one time she was completely conscious and awake begging krista to stop and the whole time this is happening you know like i just said colleen did not pass out or faint not one time all she did was she kept screaming at the top of her lungs begging krista to stop attacking her colleen felt every single slash Every single kick, every single punch, every single slap, every little thing that was inflicted upon her, she did not one time through this whole attack lose consciousness. At the end of this 45 minutes of absolute torture, Tadaryl takes the box cutter from Krista and he holds Colleen down while he carves a giant pentagram into her chest. Colleen was also awake and fully conscious when this happened. This also did not make her pass out. 
after Tadero finished carving the pentagram into Colleen's chest, Krista took out a small meat cleaver that she brought with her, and she used this cleaver to slash Colleen's throat open. And even after having her throat slit, Colleen did not pass out. She was still alive, still somehow able to talk, and again, crying and begging Krista to stop. Colleen literally raised up after being violently beaten, after her nose had been broken, after she had been slashed with a box cutter over 300 times, after having a pentagram carved into her chest, and after having her throat slit with a cleaver. After all of this, Colleen raised up, and she told Krista, quote, If you let me go, I promise I won't tell anyone about this. I'll even walk back to Florida without stopping at Job Corps to get my things. End quote. And Krista responded to this by beating Colleen further. Krista kept screaming at Colleen to shut the fuck up, saying, quote, It's really hard to hurt someone when they're speaking to you. Krista then took a giant chunk of asphalt and began beating Colleen's skull in with it. Krista beat Colleen's head in so severely with this chunk of asphalt that her head was completely busted open, her skull was shattered into pieces, and her brain was completely exposed. Colleen Slimmer died during this part of the attack. So everything that was done to her up until this, she was alive, breathing, and conscious for the entire time. After Krista was done, she took a piece of Colleen's skull and placed it in her jacket pocket as a trophy. Krista and Tadaryl then dragged Colleen's body to a nearby pile of debris and leaves and left her there. It was then that Krista took Colleen's ID cards from her wallet and put them in her pocket also. Krista and Tadaryl then put mud all over the bloodstains on their clothes and shoes in an attempt to cover up evidence. Then they, along with Shadola, all walked to a nearby gas station, and this is where they disposed of Colleen's ID cards. Then the group of three checked back in at Job Corps around 10, 10.30 p.m., as if nothing had happened. Four checked out that day, three checked in. The first place that Krista went when she checked back in was Kim's room, which, if you remember, Kim was the student that Krista initially told about her plan to kill Colleen. Yeah. And while Krista was in Kim's room, she was just... So happy, so high from what she had just done. She was even holding that piece of Colleen's skull in the air, dancing around with it in circles as she laughed and sang. She was laughing to the point to where she was crying. The next day, Krista carried that same fragment of Colleen's skull with her everywhere. She was bragging to a number of students that she had killed Colleen, and she was showing off that piece of her skull to everyone who questioned her. It's absolutely fucking deranged. Krista even went as far as to show students the bloodstains that were still on her shoes from when she kicked Colleen's face in. It would be the very next day after the murder, on Friday, January 13th, 1995, at around 8 a.m., that Colleen Slemmer's body was found by a university employee who was walking through the park. Colleen's body was so badly mangled, he said that upon first glance, he couldn't tell if it was a human body or the body of a dead dog or some other animal. It was when he got closer and noticed the naked torso that he realized it was human remains. He panicked, and he immediately called the authorities, 
and it wouldn't be long after the call that Knoxville police as well as the university police got to the scene. And get this shit, Ray. That morning, Krista literally walked back to the crime scene, only to be denied entry by the officers on scene. So yeah, she literally tried to go back and relive what she had done, not knowing that Colleen's body had already been found. Oh my god. I know that I've been like really quiet, but sorry guys, I am I need a fucking fluff fact. A fluff fact? I need a fluff fact. Fluff fact. Hello, you brave, beautiful soul. If you've made it this far, then you're handling this case way better than I am. So it's time for a fluff fact. A fluff fact being something we use to diffuse the situation when we're discussing something that's a wee bit too intense for us. So for today's fluff fact, since we're talking about the 90s, there was one time my older brother gave me a wedgie that was so severe that it left me with the impression that my butt cheeks had been split by the staff of Moses. <laughs> it was so bad that it ripped open the back of my underwear. And I couldn't sit right for a week. To this day, as an adult, I still can't wear thongs without being reminded of the violence that befell my backside. And now, back to today's case. Since Colleen's body was discovered so close to the Job Corps facility, the investigation began with interviewing students at the Job Corps program. And it didn't take long for Krista and Daryl's names to be given. Krista, after all, had made a huge thing about, you know, what she did. She was bragging to everyone that she right. had viciously murdered Colleen. Right. So she got linked to the crime very quickly, along with Daryl Ship and Shadola Peterson. It was further damning evidence towards Krista when her jacket was found in one of the classrooms, the jacket that still had a piece of Colleen's broken skull in the pocket. And this whole thing, you know, it really affected the community when it was released to the public that Colleen had a pentagram carved into her chest. This whole satanic panic mania flocked into the area like this absolutely fucking terrified people like this whole you know, it was painted like this whole satanic, ritualistic, homicide aspect got put behind it, and people were freaking the fuck out. And that also further solidifies the whole thing that I was talking about earlier, where I feel like he wasn't an actual satanic practitioner. He was using this as shock value. Pretty much, pretty much. And, I mean, it did the damn thing in that regard. People were really, really panicking that this that this young girl had been so brutally killed with this satanic marking carved into where it just, it really, really caused a frenzy. Yeah. So Krista, she pretty much immediately confessed to the police that she in fact had tortured and killed Colleen Slimmer. She waived her right to remain silent. And then she just talked and talked and talked. Krista's full confession was 42 pages long when it was typed out. Wow. She went into great detail about how and why she had killed Colleen, saying that she just blacked out because Colleen had made her so angry and that she didn't mean for it to go as far as it did. Shut up. 
that audio clip that I just played for you guys was from Krista's confession. And I understand it might be a little hard to hear. That was the absolute best quality of that snippet that you can find. Mm -hmm. But for those of you that couldn't understand what Krista was saying, she was telling this investigator that she just wasn't even thinking that Colleen had just made her so mad that she blacked out. And then the investigator was like, well, what'd you do? And Krista said, I just kept hitting her and hitting her and hitting her. And she was pleading with me to please stop, please stop. And I just told her, you know, shut up. I don't want you to talk to me. I don't want to talk to you. I just want to find a way out of this. And I didn't mean for it to go as far as what it did. Wow. So what you just heard was a snippet from Krista's actual interrogation. It's super fucking chilling. So when police investigated the room of Tadaryl's ship, because his name got brought up into this, Mm -hmm. they found a copy of the Satanic Bible. Dun, dun, dun. Right. And uh, as well as some notes from Tadaryl saying that he, quote, had to make a human sacrifice because the celestial bodies were in alignment, end quote. What? In less than 36 hours after the murder of Colleen Slimmer, Krista Pike, Tadaryl Ship, and Shadola Peterson were all arrested and charged with first-degree murder. Krista then led police to the gas station where she had disposed of Colleen's ID cards, and that's where they were ultimately recovered. So this bit of the investigation 100% proved that the body that was found was Colleen. Yeah. When Shadola Peterson went to trial, her charges were reduced to being an accessory to murder because she had became an informant to the police against Tadaryl and Krista, and Mm. she was just given probation. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Now, also keep in mind, Shadola and Tadaryl, they were both 17. Krista was 18. Okay. So, Shadola... She was tried as an adult, I take it? Krista was. Yeah. Tadaryl and Shadola were not, I don't think, or their sentences were way less harsh than Krista's. Gotcha. So, Shadola got off with probation for being an accessory to murder in the death of Colleen Slimmer. Mm. Since Tadaryl's ship was only, as I said, 17 years old at the time of the killing... He was sentenced to life imprisonment with the possibility of parole instead of being given the death penalty. So because he was underage, they took death penalty off the table and they just gave him life imprisonment with the possibility of parole. But it it didn't really specify like a minimum number of years that he had to serve. I'm guessing like 25 to 30, but I'm not sure. But he does have the possibility of parole. Oh, Lord. Krista's trial was held on March 22, 1996. She was prosecuted by Bill Crabtree, who was an assistant district attorney in Knox County. In his opening statements, he told the jury that the evidence in this trial was from, quote, an act so vile, so heinous, so atrocious, so despicable, as bad or worse than anything you've ever seen in a movie, read in a novel, or dreamed in your worst nightmares, end quote. It only took the jury a few hours to convict Krista Pike on the charge of first-degree murder and the death of Colleen Slimmer. And at only 20 years old, Krista Pike was sentenced to death by electrocution, making her the youngest woman in America to receive the death penalty. When her sentence was read aloud, Krista cried and pleaded to hug her mom. I actually have an audio clip here of Krista being read her sentence. And I won't lie... It's not the easiest thing to listen to. Mm. You know, if you didn't have any context, you would hear this and be like, my God, this girl's crying. This is awful. But you have to remember everything I've told you up until this point. 
Yeah, and you I have, feel no pity. You have to remember that Krista never showed not one goddamn bit of remorse for Colleen, not during or after the attack that took her life. So I'm going to play this for you guys now. I am actually torn between two different sides of this fence mm-hmm. because one side of me, I have absolutely zero pity for her. Boo-hoo, crocodile tears, all you want. Right, right. But the other side of me, as someone who has experienced a lot of trauma. Right, right. I also see her as a victim of her environment. Absolutely, and and that is a real layer to this. Because had she not gone through all of that abuse during her childhood and her upbringing, it's just... She probably would have went a different way. Exactly. Had she actually been nurtured instead of left to her own devices, basically, I don't give a shit about you. Going through some of the worst abuse imaginable, you know, yeah. With no one to understand or even offer an ear or a shoulder you know what i mean there's no there's no tenderness there there's no human connection there so she really was a product of her environment yes absolutely and that really i mean it's a good point and it's a real layer here because i'm also on that fence it's like i said way in the beginning of this episode that you know i have real sympathy For Krista, that was a helpless child. The Krista that was a child growing up in an environment where no one loved her or cared about her. I feel with that for all of my heart. But this. We have to ask ourselves, had she had a the stability of a normal family, of a normal household. With love and care and passion. What would she have turned out to be had she had that chance? Probably not this. Because you saw a real glimmer of hope in her when she was with Delphi. Yes. Yes. And you can see the night and day difference of the way her mother brought her up and the way her grandmother brought her up. And then the trauma of losing that grandmother. You see her life and her personality and her behavior just went way downhill continuously from that point onward. And it's sad. And then like with what we just listened to. Like I said before the clip, it really is hard to listen to that, to hear Krista being put to death and her crying. And, you know, it's sad and it's hard to listen to. But, like, I have this part of my brain that's like, you know, what's probably even more hard to listen to? Colleen screams and cries for an hour as she was tortured. An hour is a hell of a long time. 
to be beat and tortured. Especially when, and this is coming from a personal place, when you're in certain situations and stuff is being done to you that you can't even fathom or understand the reason why it's happening to you, those minutes seem like an eternity. It just goes on and on and on. Yeah, it does. And you have to keep in mind, too, and I'll say it over and over again, through that whole attack, every single thing that was done to Colleen, she felt and was awake for every fucking bit of it, begging and screaming for her life to be spared. It's really, really, really fucking hard to wrap my brain around. Do I feel, I guess you could say, some sort of pity or a layer of hmm poor girl not at all after her actions she became something else a monster that would do that to colleen yeah and this next part that i'm gonna tell you what you just said it's gonna solidify everything that you just said pretty much that much more it enrages the fuck out of me but just a few days after krista was sentenced to death she wrote a very, very enraging letter to Tadaryl. Like, it's fucking sickening. And I have this letter. I'm going to read it for you. Krista wrote, quote, Please write me. I miss you so much. You see what I get for trying to be nice to the hoe? I went ahead and bashed her brains in so she'd die quickly instead of letting her bleed to death and suffer more, and they fucking fry me. Ain't that some shit? Please write me and tell me how you're feeling. Also, tell your lawyer if he wants me to testify for you, I will. Love you for the rest of my life. Sincerely, little devil. End quote. I love how she added in there, I love you till the rest of my life. Bitch, it ain't gonna be very long, is it? (laughs) (laughs) It ain't gonna be very long, is it? So again, Krista absolutely in no way shows not one ounce of remorse for what she did oh well then in that case bitch you deserve to fry (laughs) i hope your bones break every time you fucking breathe (laughs) so you know krista's clearly only concerned about herself and in her mind she still sees what she did to colleen as a justified evil and it's absolutely fucking enraging krista would go on to try appealing her sentence numerous times in the coming months and they were all rejected After a few years passed, the whole frenzy behind this alleged satanic killing started to die down. But it wouldn't be the last time that the media would hear from Krista. Just five years after she was sentenced to death and placed on death row, Krista would become famous once more. On August 24, 2001, Krista tried to kill another inmate, a woman named Patricia Jones. Krista tried strangling her to death with a shoelace. And she was almost successful, too. If a guard had not intervened, then Patricia would have been dead. For sure. Krista would go on to say that her intention wasn't to kill Patricia, but in a phone call with her mom, Krista was caught saying, quote, I bet you if she gets near me, I'll do it again, and I'm going to succeed this damn time. See, now I know the difference between premeditated murder and what I did to Colleen. Because, see, I premeditated the hell out of this. Sure did. If I would have had 30 more seconds, we would have a chalk outline out there in the wreck pen, and that fucking bitch would be gone somewhere. End quote. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
Yep. Nope. I'm glad they fried her. Bye. And, and this was five years later. So Krista would actually be taken to trial over this. And at this trial, she received another guilty conviction of attempted first degree murder tacked on to what she already had. So after this, Krista's defense team started trying even harder to have her sentence appealed. Her defense was saying that she was too young to receive the death penalty and that it was unconstitutional to sentence her to such. Her defense also argued that the reason Krista acted the way that she did was because of the substantial amount of abuse she endured as a child. It was brought up that she had brain damage from her mother's drinking during the pregnancy and that Krista was suffering from severe untreated mental illness. Dr. Jonathan Henry Pincus, who is an expert in neurology, testified to the appeals court that Krista had sustained significant damage to her frontal lobes at a very young age, which would make sense of her exceedingly violent behavioral patterns. The court, however, rejected this appeal, and they upheld her previous sentence, death by the electric chair, and she was sent back to death row. It would be in 2012 that Krista would, for a third time, make headlines. When she hatched an elaborate escape plan with one of her guards and an outside boyfriend of hers. Oh my god! You would figure they would just... I mean, it really seems to be that Krista's doing everything she can to become a better individual, doesn't it show? I just don't understand. And the defense team is like, grabbing its straws. Yeah. It's fucking crazy. What the fuck? Oh, I'm squidward and wow, this is fucking insane. <laughs> so, the following clip is about two minutes long, and it was taken directly from the broadcast of the event done by ABC News. I will include this full video in the show notes if you'd like to go listen to the full thing. But I'm going to play that for you now to give you a play-by-play of what Krista did to escape. We begin this half hour with a cunning plot by a brutal killer to escape from death row, foiled by the authorities. Krista Pike was the youngest woman ever to be sentenced to death in the U.S. And plotting her escape, authorities say she proves she can seduce men into doing whatever she wants. ABC Steve Osinsami has much more in Atlanta. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Robin. She was running out of appeals, so the death sentence was waiting for her, and she was desperate to get out. She has a short fuse. That's the reason why she's sitting on death row. She likes to cut. So who in the world would try to help set her free? Turns out she found boyfriends while sitting in jail. She's one of the most dangerous women in America, and he was the man who fell in love with her. Together, police say they hatched an elaborate plot to break her out of prison where she sits on death row. Authorities have arrested this man, Donald Cohut, a 34-year-old from Flemington, New Jersey, who had been making regular trips to Tennessee's death row and became the boyfriend of Krista Pike, a cold-blooded killer. In 1995, she used a box knife to slash the throat of a friend she thought was flirting with her lover. Krista Pike is a fairly notorious killer in the state of Tennessee. She has been on death row since 1996. Her relationship with Kohut began early last year with love letters like these, which she sent to the different men in her life, telling them, you bring out the best in me and I want to lick your soul. Police have also arrested 23-year-old Justin Heflin, one of Pike's guards, on death row. They say he accepted bribes from her boyfriend. We know that he gave him things like a canoe and a Gibson guitar and some cash. Their alleged plan was to copy keys to prison doors by making paper tracings. Other guards found those tracings in January before Pike could make her daring escape. Desperate people try desperate things. 
um, when you have nothing else to lose, sometimes you'll just try anything. Yep, she really tried that shit. So, this whole thing angers me because why did it take 17 years after the fact and she's still not dead? Like, I know I sound hung up on this, but, you know, you're basically living off of taxpayer dollars on death row, getting fed three meals a day, and... You know, it's just like you've already been sentenced to death. You've already showed you have zero fucking remorse about it. You're living this fantasy where you are just the devil and I'll lick your soul and da 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 da. And it's just, what the fuck? But I think the bigger thing, even with what you just said, is the fact that she doesn't show any inclination that she's changing or that she wants to change or that she's able to be rehabilitated. So this whole incident with her getting caught trying to escape and then her trying to kill Patricia Jones back in 2001, these instances have been used against Krista in terms of rejecting her appeals. And I mean, I agree with that. What it shows, again, is that she has not changed one bit. She's still incredibly dangerous, and she still feels not the first bit of remorse, like you said, for what she's done. Yeah. So here's the twist. You're going to love this shit. Oh, God. To this day... Krista Pike is 46 years old, she's still alive, and she's the only woman in Tennessee on death row. This again, next Yeah. yeah. Again, like she's why? she still has not been executed. Why? This next clip that I'm going to play for you guys is a clip from Colleen's mother. Hashtag fry Krista Pike. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so Again, this next clip that I have for you, it's a clip from Colleen's mom, Mae Martinez. When she came forward last year in an interview with the WBIR Channel 10 News, and in this interview, she is expressing that she wants nothing more than to see an execution date set for Krista Pike. I will also link this video in the show notes for those of you who want to go listen to all of it. But yeah, it's really heartbreaking. I'm going to play that for you now. What I want to see from the judge right now would be to get a date and put her down instead of waiting another year or another day. There's not a day go by and I don't think about Colleen or how she died and how rough it was. And I just want Krista down so I can end it, relieve my daughter so she finally can be resting. Honestly, my heart breaks every single day because it's, I keep reliving it and reliving it. And I can't no more. And I want this to happen before I die. Otherwise, nobody will see justice. I agree with her. Yeah, I do too. I agree. It's absolutely heartbreaking. And you know, I literally cannot fathom what this poor woman has went through. Well, you know, Colleen didn't get to live to be 45. No, and if you think about it, think about this. Krista has now been on death row longer than Colleen was ever alive. Yeah. Which... That's one of those things that, you know, makes you really angry, or at least it makes me angry. It makes me livid. So, May Martinez, she went on to build a memorial in her backyard in honor of the daughter she lost. The exceedingly kind, gentle, and bright daughter that loved life and loved to draw, paint, and roller skate. May does everything in her power to keep the memory of Colleen alive and present, and she also avidly continues to this day to push the Tennessee courts to finally set an execution date for Krista Pike. 
And that concludes the case of the youngest woman in America to be given the death penalty, Krista Pike. You did the damn thing, and I'm glad the damn thing is done. <laughs> I'm overly happy that the damn thing is done. <laughs> this episode really puts you through it, didn't I, it? <laughs> I have been trying not to cry since, like, yeah. The beginning? <laughs> the whole time? <laughs> no, not the... Well, yeah, pretty much the whole time. The whole time? <laughs> so. Well, what are your thoughts? Do you have any other than what you just said? Because this was, you know, again... I had a really hard time putting this together. I put a lot of time into this episode because yeah. this story absolutely just it just bent my fucking brain. Yeah, I'm I'm still trying to wrap my head around one how you can treat a child that way, mm-hmm. how you can blame them for everything that has happened to them right. that was not their fault, right. where they needed your support. That's right, and then. Oh, because your baby got sentenced to death. Now all of a sudden it's, I love you. Bitch, you didn't love that baby from the start. Don't start that shit. Yeah, that part specifically in the clip where Krista's being read her sentence, I didn't understand that. I was like, why are you crying for the woman that literally put you through hell and back? I mean, I don't understand it. I I don't get it. It's a really fucking weird dynamic. So I also want to make a note to you guys that if this case fascinated you, there's actually a really, really good book written about this case. Mm -hmm. Uh, The name of the novel is A Love to Die For, and it's by Patricia Springer. So if any of you guys want to get your hands on that book, it's a very, very detailed, extremely well-written novel about this case specifically. I just thought I would include it here at the end for those of you that want to read it. Well, darling, I foresee me getting the hell off of here and going watching something that's like, ooh, puppies, kittens, and rainbows, because what (laughs) the actual fuck? Well, on that note, you guys, I really hope that you enjoyed slash not enjoyed my case this week. I know it was a really rough one, but... Thanks for sticking through it. We had fun. We made it fun. We made we did make it fun. We made it fun. And not to mention, I am so sad yet happy that this is the last episode of this year. Yeah, what a way to go out. I'm telling you, like, <laughs> like this was a, a bang up fucking job. I, I am brought not, the guns. I am not okay. Cage, <laughs> I am not okay. <laughs> so If any of you peeps out there would like to follow me and Ray and all of our weird will great news, you can definitely do that. You can find us on Facebook at Gore Report, a true crime podcast. On Instagram at Gore Report Podcast. On Twitter at Gore Report. So, yeah, I am thoroughly uncomfortable. My (laughs) stomach hurts from falling through my asshole. I will never look at a box cutter the same way ever again. And what the fuck is up with death row, guys? Can we please get it together? Okay. Bye. Bye. Are you afraid? You should be. You bless me.